we've been dealing with, uh, if you will, the four questions. I was uh, talking to Terry Fakes when we were discussing this because I have uh, at least uh, said to my students at the university, uh, I think that any time a preacher or teacher, anyone is teaching um, or trying to communicate the truth from the Bible, that they're probably moving around in one of these questions somewhere. Uh, remember, the first question is, is there a God? Um, and some of the research I'm reading nowadays uh, suggests that uh, there certainly is the new movement called the New Atheists. Uh, there are always uh, been uh, agnostics. And one of the real questions is, is there a God for some people? I mean, there really is. That's a big question. And we, we have to be prepared to say, is there any good evidence or good probability uh, that we could answer that? Yes. But the second question we've dealt with, and if you're interested, all these are recorded. A lot of people aren't just concerned about the theoretical or the existential question of, is there a God? They're more interested in what kind of God is this, <laughs> right? I mean, we're, we're, we're praying and we're looking at life and a lot of people aren't so wound up uh, in the existential or the philosophical thing, but to say, well, okay, I'll accept the notion there's a God, but man, what kind of God is this? When you look at our world, when you look at the situation, and we've dealt with that in, in some, some measure. Third question we're on right now is this a question of what does, God re, what does God reasonably expect from us? What, what does God reasonably expect? Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to assert or suggest there are certain expectations that you have in friendships, aren't there? I mean, you know, every once in a while when you go out with someone, maybe they will pick up the check, right? <laughs> or if you've, uh, if you've mastered a friend of mine, mastered what we call the fumble, you know, where oh, I can't get to my wallet, you know, or, or they've got, remember that, remember that, those alligator arms, you know, oh, I want to get the check. Um, but we have some reasonable expect, yeah, we, we, we have some reasonable expectations of that, um, a friendship. Uh, there are reasonable expectations at your job. Uh, they are things that your, your boss or your job expect of you to say, hey, you know, come on. There's some reasonable expectations about life. I, I just started uh, this past week, we started school. And so um, uh, I'm there in those classes. And one of the things that I do is I always prepare for them. I don't print anymore. We don't kill trees. It's all electronic. I give them a syllabus and I just say, now look, this is what you can expect from me. This is what I expect from you, you know, and you can hold me to it. In fact, the other day, a student came up to me and said, Dr. Sanders, I think you made a mistake. And I said, okay, it's possible. They said, I think you put the wrong date on the assignment. <laughs> I love these kids. <laughs> and I looked at it and I did, <laughs> but I didn't tell them that. You can't show weakness, right? I just said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to abide by the syllabus. That's my expectation of you, and that's my expectation of me. And I walk back going, you knucklehead. <laughs> right? So that, I mean, students have some expectation of what they're going to get from me. You know, I told them the other day, I said, I, I just need you to know, you'll never, we'll never start class late, and you will never get out early. Okay? Just get ready for that. Just prepare uh, so we're trying to help understand it. So the idea of what, what would be some reasonable expectations from God. And I've asked you, if you will, you can turn to your Bibles, go to your table of contents. If you have a physical Bible, your tablet or your phone. Um, with Jesus's first sermon, it's kind of been our place of departure. Jesus's first sermon uh, that he preached after John had kind of gone off the scene. Uh, and we'll pick that up later sometime in, uh, in Luke about, about what John did. But Jesus comes in the first sermon. He said, now after John, I'm in, chap I'm in chapter 1, verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. In other words, it, it's, it's ready. It's complete. Uh, the time is fulfilled. The rule of God is here. Uh, the Greek word in goose, uh, uh, it, some translations, it's at hand. It just means it's here. Uh, it's not future. It's here. The, the rule of God, the ruling of God in people's lives is here. And he says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And we've discussed what does that mean, repent? What is it, you know, some loaded up word. I, I, I will say to you again that I think uh, 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 
I read this from a guy named Chapel who said that really repentance is more about depending than doing. That when I finally change my mind about who's in charge, uh, repentance is more about depending than doing. Because I'm saying, okay, you know what? I'm changing my mind about who's in charge here. I, I'm changing my mind about who's in control here. I'm changing my mind about who's calling the shots here. I, I'm going to depend on God. I'm going to depend on Jesus. And, and so de- repentance is, is this idea of dependence. It's, it's more of, of depending on someone else. And the second one is faith. We, we've discussed that. Belief or trust in another. They're, they're correlated and connected. And I said that it seems to me, this is my language, I, you know, it could be, could be wrong, but, but it's this idea of, of, uh, of what does God expect in repentance and belief. I gave us this idea. Here it is. Embracing my creaturely status. That's what it is, I think. Embracing, embracing uh, my creaturely status. It's me recognizing I'm the creature, God's the creator. I said to you a few weeks ago, that, that's, that's kind of given me some relief lately. So I realized, okay, I, you know, I, I'm a creature. He's the creator. I need to change my mind about who's in charge here, and I need to trust in another. And so embracing my creaturely status. And that, that's not easy. That, that's, a, that's, that's difficult. I, I was thinking uh, about this, about kind of embracing it. Uh, today is the, I, I put on my Facebook page, some of y'all respond, I couldn't believe, but today's the first day I started teaching 26 years ago. And... Um, I, well, yeah, that's not always the response at the school. <laughs> yeah, they're going, yeah. But yeah, but uh, I remember uh, the process. I, in fact, I remember I, I, I emailed three guys this week, uh, Jeff LaDuke, Mike Kelly, and uh, John, John Nutter. And I said to them, I want to thank you guys for helping me. Because when I got through with the first lecture, I, I had resigned my church in, in Louisiana and came to Oklahoma City, and the first day we got here, it snowed, which meant it was not God's will for me to be here. <laughs> I was telling Phil, I don't ever pay to go anywhere cold. People say, you want to go skiing? No. <clears throat> you know? um, so we started on the wrong foot, uh, and I went to class, and when I got through teaching my first class, I said to myself, that is the stupidest stuff I've ever heard in my life. You need to go call your church and see if they'll give you your job back. Now, I had gone through the process of thinking, I'm supposed to do this. And I remember trying to embrace that. When I was at the church, I was reminding Becky that before we came here, I was in church. We still had some Sunday night services, and I was passing out notebooks. And somebody said to me, what are you doing, trying to turn this into a university? And I went, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and Becky said to me one time, she says, Cliff, we were trying to decide, are we going to come uh, for me to teach at Mid-America? She said, Cliff, you are never more alive than when you're preaching, or teaching, rather. I don't like to preach. I, I'll say to people when I preach, does that make sense? And they're like, are, you, are we supposed to answer? <laughs> I'll go, does that make sense? Are we clear? You know, you've heard me say that. And so I had to, at some point, embrace who I was. I thought I was going to be a pastor all my life. I'm not. Uh, I, I, I thought I would be in a local church on a step. I wasn't. I finally, and I was glad to, I embraced what I believe God had for me to do. And, and just like you've done that in your life, to embrace who you are, how God's wired you. You know, I, 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 I've told you before, being a pastor was hard for me because when I'd go to the hospital, I'd try to teach people. <laughs> they really loved that. I remember a lady had back surgery at the church, and she was in the hospital forever. And after I went to the second time and thought, how are you feeling? How's your back? How many? I thought, what are we going to talk about? You know, after a while, I mean, you know, and I'm not telling jokes anymore because I realized one time a person had real bad surgery. I'm telling jokes. Please leave. <laughs> they were busting their stitches. I thought I was just being entertainment, you know. So I, I remember going to that person in the hospital, and I thought, you know, you're going to be here a while. I'm going to come a bunch of times. I think we ought to read a book together. They were dismissed the next day <laughs> to an undisclosed location, okay, that I could not find. I mean, I was trying to be a good pastor. I, I was trying to do all that stuff, you know. You go to the hospital, so I says, you know, I had a stent put in. Yeah, well, you know, if you ate less fat, you wouldn't have heart trouble. 
It's a low-fat diet, I'm telling you. All you got to do, Dean Ornish, he's written a book on this that can reverse heart disease. You just need to read it. Yeah, <clears throat> so I had to embrace. I had to embrace, I'm not a pastor, and I'm somewhat of a teacher, and ornery somewhat. <laughs> Embracing who we are. Listen, we got to embrace our creaturely status. You, you can fight it, you can argue with it, you can try to neglect it. But until we accept our creaturely status, and like Jesus said, now you need to change your mind. You need to, who's in charge? And you need to believe in somebody else. That's me, right? Jesus talking. You, 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 you need to embrace that. Now we said, how, what does that look like? And I said last week, and I'm going to do a little review. Becky always warns me not to do this too much. On this first thing here, what is it embracing? So how, how do you do that? How do you embrace it? It's one thing to say you should. The idea of kind of repentance and belief. What am I supposed to believe? What am, what, what am, I, supposed to, what am I supposed to change my mind about? Last week I said, here it is. We'll begin with, come to me. And I'm not going to spend time on that because I did it. But it's fascinating to me that Jesus says, come to me. And, and I told you before that I have a tendency to always make everything a principle or an idea or a concept. And this is personal. Jesus said, come to me, not to an experience, not to a church, not to a, not to a thought, not to an idea. Come to me. And that personal dimension is something what I often miss. I'm a, I live by principles. I'm I, I'm a, by, by my Myers-Briggs sorter, I'm an NT. I have to, have to make sense out of everything. I have to create a list about everything. And, and I've, in my own journey, part of, part of the struggle for me has, has been to, to, to don't come to your prayer list, Cliff. Don't come to your practices, your disciplines. Come to me. I think I've had the Spirit say to me a couple of times, put your prayer list away and talk to me. You know, I was just praying, uh, uh, one, two, uh, here, this one, next. You got that next, right? And, and so come to me. And so I wonder, I just wonder, I, I want to just run through this. Uh, some, this. This imagery, Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. John 7, come to me if you're thirsty and drink, for out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This, this language of come to me, come to me, come to me, comes all over throughout the New Testament. It's not come to a principle. It's not come to a religion. It's not come to an idea. It's not to come to a system. Come to me. Come to me. And so I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking some of those things that I participate in, Bible study, prayer, those kind of things, sometimes if I'm not careful, I'll come short of getting to Jesus. Is that ever happened to you? You know, I just kind of come short. So last week I said, and I just want to re refresh your mind on this. I, this idea of coming short. I was, you know, kind of going in the right direction, but, but not specifically. And, and here's, here's what I think happens when we, if we, we come short, when Jesus says, come to me, he doesn't say just come toward me. He says, come to me, not toward me, to me. That this is what happens is we substitute activity for attachment. This, this verse in Matthew 7 is a group of people who've cast out devils and performed miracles and preached in his name, done all kinds of things. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. If there's one thing about American religion, it is it's a very activist religion. We like to do. You, you get around men particularly and ask them, you don't say, how are you doing? Most guys don't, you know. They'll say, what do you do? Right? What do you do? I, I, I had a guy who asked me one time at a minister's meeting. So Cliff, you're still in the church. Yeah, where are you at? I said, right in front of you. I make my living with words. You, you, what he was asking me, where are you working? Where, where, where's your church? And then I would say, well, it's not my church. I work there. It's God's. I was a lot of fun to be around in ministers' meetings. But, but, but activity. So sometimes we get so busy in activity that we don't come to Jesus. And I've noticed this. and I, I, I've, I've said to my wife and some, some, some good friends, um, could I be as happy and as fulfilled in Jesus 
if I suddenly couldn't do all the things I do, teach, lead, stuff like that? Or am I addicted? Am I driven by the activity? You know? This passage here, Jesus said, you've done a lot of things. You've cast out devils. You've performed miracles in my name. You've preached in my name. I'm thinking that's crazy. Couldn't do that. Jesus said they did. But he said, I never knew you. And depart from me. And I, I thought, man, you, you listen, in a church this size or other place, you can, you can get real busy. And, you know, you should be doing something. I got a list if you don't have one. <laughs> you know, it's like my dad used to say, the church is like a football game. There's 80,000 people who desperately need exercise watching 22 people who desperately need rest. <laughs> That's sometimes the way it is, isn't it? But on the flip side, there can sometimes be to where we substitute activity. Hard to be quiet. Hard to be alone. Hard to be reflective. That's difficult. You know, I've got a book of yours called The Wired Soul. I'm reading it's about the effects of technology on our brains that are causing problems with us in our spiritual walk. It's a really interesting book. I'm not finished with it, but I'm going to have a talk with a friend of mine. A neuro, a neuro, I think that's a neurologist. I probably need to see one. But um, about the, uh, the effects on the brain. But, but hard to be quiet. And, and so we substitute activity. Second one, um, if we're not careful, we can substitute ritual for relationship. Acts 8 this is the story, and I, again, I, I feel a little, some of you may feel like we're just run over there. I just, this is really important. If really embracing our status to come to Jesus. This is Simon the magician who got baptized by an apostle. Come to find out he's still wrapped up in bitterness and gall. He believes he can buy the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit on people. He's been baptized by an apostle. He, you know, he's gone through all the catechism, I guess, whatever. And when he says that, Peter says, repent and pray that God will forgive you of this. You know, sometimes we, we think the ritual, going to church, being baptized, paying money, you call it tithing, you know, doing stuff, being involved in ministry is, is what it's all about. No, you, you can still get involved in ministry and activity and work and substitute those rituals. Third one here, this is the one has always been interesting to me. We substitute the sign for the substance. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 makes this statement. Uh, Paul says he's, in the, the last days there are going to be some difficult times, and he says they have the form of religion, but they deny its power. They look good. They look like it. They have the form. The Greek word there, tupas, means the outline. They have the outline. They look religious. By all, by all outward measurable means, you might say, well, that, that's a person who's pretty religious. They have the sign, but not the substance. I, I used the example last week, you know, that, that this ring on my finger doesn't make me faithful to my wife. It's a sign of the substance of my commitment to my wife that's within me. You know, baptism, all those things can be the sign of a substance, of a reality. And, but it, but it, doesn't, it, isn't, it isn't necessarily so. That if we're not alert to this, we can substitute and just kind of stop short of Jesus by that. And then finally, we did this last week, the scripture for the Savior. I told you last week, a friend of mine says this every once in a while, I believe in the totally inspired word of God. His name is Jesus. There is a place, obviously, to learn about Jesus is the Bible. That's where we learn about him. But it is fascinating to me that there are, I think, some factors here that sometimes we might get so inclined to just read the Bible and study it and learn it that we still miss the Savior. This example here in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40 where Jesus makes this statement to a bunch of religious guys when he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, the scriptures, you have eternal life. But it is these, the scriptures, that speak of me, but you won't come to me. 
Notice that. Read that. John 5. That, you know, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yeah. But it is these that testify about me. But you won't come to me because I'm the one who has life. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I mean, I've met people that could study the Bible, quote the Bible, know the Bible. It just seems like they'd never met Jesus. <laughs> right? That, that we can substitute, if we're not careful, the Scriptures for the Savior. I'm not, listen, I teach the Bible every day. I read it. I love it. I study it. It's important. I, I don't think you can know real, reliable information about Jesus outside of it. But at the same time, you don't want to come to the point where that book becomes the end. And there isn't any encounter with a living Savior, with a living Christ, who who is behind the book and declares the truth of that book in our soul and heart. And so when Jesus has come to me, my concern is what might cause there to be to come short. It can be activity, ritual, sign, or maybe even the scripture. Now, that's, I think, just this idea of to come to him and to be alert to that. So what is it? Look here in, 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 uh, in uh, Mark. We're back here in Mark. And then Jesus um, continues in this sermon. I want to keep following this, but what does he then require of me? And so then it says, after Jesus preaches this in verse 16, and as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and his brother Simon casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. It's just interesting to me, Mark, like, do you really have to tell us that, Mark? <laughs> They're casting their nets into the sea. Oh, they were fishermen. Really? <laughs> I thought they were construction workers. I did, I'm just telling you, that's the way my goofy little mind works. Just, just interesting. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I want to look at this because I think this is the next thing. Not only come to me, now what? Follow me. Follow me. Having, having just uh, recognized this, Jesus having declared this, when he begins to speak to people, after he begins his ministry... Uh, one guy has done a little study on this and said it's about, in the Gospels, about five times Jesus calls for belief in him. Five, about five times. You can look at Now, he says, you know, if you'll believe that I can make you well like that. But we're talking about belief in him as Savior and Lord about five times. But in the New Testament, Jesus uses the word follow me about 20. That this seems to be the language of him. I've said to my students before, um, I try to always work with them to work with the language of the Bible when they're turning in their assignments. Um, you know, we, we say stuff like this. If you want to be a Christian, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. And I always go, as what? <laughs> what, what as what? <laughs> Finish that sentence. And then I'm always asking, where did we get that language? Where, where did we get that? Ask Jesus into your heart. Do I know? Where's, where's that in the New Testament language? Ask Jesus in your heart. I don't know. <laughs> Do you know? Hmm, it's interesting. Or, or you need to accept him. Again, as what? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just interested here of the language we use and how it might serve or not serve us to understand what does he, Jesus, what does God expect of us? I mean, I, I could say, you know, say, well, I've accepted him as my Lord and Savior. You know, I think I could make that argument that the scriptures do say that. But what I find is in the New Testament is this large body of language that says, follow me. Now, because I'm suggesting that following him demands faith. Following him demands repentance that I'm no longer in charge. You know, I, if I'm, if, if I'm going to follow him, it's, it, it seems, it just makes sense to me that those things have happened, that I have changed my mind about who's in charge and that I have put my trust in another. And so now, okay, let's go. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have, I'm going to follow you. You know, it's interesting when I was a pastor Back in those days, I remember uh, 
thinking about this, I always preached according to the church calendar. Now, I didn't tell anybody that, you know, because I didn't want to be accused of being liberal. <laughs> but, but I remember um, what I would do is in August, September, and October, I would preach in the Old Testament, working my way up to Advent. You know, that's Advent, the season you start putting your Christmas list together. <laughs> you got four weeks. <laughs> and, and then I would work my way through the Old Testament up to promises about that. And then at Christmas, we'd have Christmas. And, and then uh, uh, New Year's. And then I would work in January, February, March, and April, the early accounts of Jesus and his life through the Gospels up to Easter. And then at Easter, we'd tell the story. And then after Easter, between that and Pentecost, do some of the, uh, the uh, appearances Jesus made. And then after Easter and Pentecost, we would study the book of Acts and work through the early church and what's going on in the epistles, you know, wives of the apostles. And uh, I'm going to put that on a test this year. <laughs> uh, work through the epistles and then come back to the Old Testament. Now, they didn't know that. But I was thinking, i got to find a way here to balance the diet out so that we're getting the whole Bible all the time. And there's some flow and movement to it. What I, what I began to reflect on was this. There were lots of songs about Christmas. And there are lots of songs about Easter. There are not a lot of songs about blessed are the pure in spirit. You know? Did you hear that one? I mean... There are, we don't sing a lot of songs about the life and ministry and work of Jesus, except Christmas and Easter. Is that right? Do you think that's true? I mean, I've been thinking about that. Are there songs that we sing that we remember about following Jesus, about living for him? I, I don't recall them. But Jesus says here all the time, and if you will, <clears throat> every instance, follow me. Don't just believe in me. I mean, following requires belief. Following requires repentance. Following requires all that. But if repentance and faith don't issue forth in that, are we really then doing what God requires? What he expects of us? I've told you, I don't use the word Christian anymore. I, I just don't. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it. It isn't descriptive enough. So people ask me, are you, I say, well, I don't use that. I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't, I'm not always real good at it. I'm learning. I'm growing. But I want a verb. I want a verb about my life, not a noun or an adjective. Whenever we take a verb and make it into an adjective, we kill it. I'm a follower, a follower of the way. And so Jesus says here, follow me. That seems to be the language of him. Now, if you will, I'm just going to ask you because what does that mean? Follow him. What, what, what does it mean? Does it mean to do what he does? Does it mean to go where he goes? Does it mean to participate in what he participates in? We've got to come to some awareness, you know, that, 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 that following him means some activities, some action. I love what uh, Mel said this past summer, our youth... The uh, pastor said that if I'm following Jesus, if people follow me, I shouldn't be getting in the way of them getting to Jesus. Ooh. Think about that. If I'm following Jesus close enough that when people get next to me, am I helping them follow Jesus or am I getting in the way? You know? I told you we live on the south side of town. Um, when we'd come up here to crossings, I'd always say to myself, when you get north of I-40, be careful how you drive. Too many crossings people up here, <laughs> right? If people were to follow you around, would they say, whoa, boy, that guy's not very close to Jesus. <laughs> Following him, what does it mean? Well, I'm going to give you two things that Jesus said. Turn over, if you will, and that to the right in Mark to go to chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Because here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. After he had had this 
great conversation with Peter, and he had to kind of tighten him up. And Jesus, in verse 34 of Mark 8, said, And he summoned the crowd with the disciples. He said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, notice here in verse 35, there's a series of four. Now, I'm reading on the American Standard. I'm not certain if the ESV does this. But... It says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Verse 36, for who, what does it profit a man to gain the world lose his own soul? Verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 34, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, will I also be ashamed of him when I come in my glory. It's interesting here. Jesus says, here's what you have to do. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And here's why. The word for, there's a series of them. The word for always denotes evidence or reason. It always does. The word for always denotes evidence or reason for what's been said. I'll give you an example. It's like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know that? For <clears throat> the Bible tells me so. That's the evidence. That's the, that's the rationale for it. That's the understanding of it. And so whenever you see the word for, it's always providing evidence. Now, Jesus gives a series of evidence of saying, look, if you, if you try to save your life, you need to understand something. What's going to happen? You're going to lose it. If you, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, you'll find it. For what does it profit? If, look, you, you should do this because what, what profit will it be if you gain the world? And lose your soul. So, so, so this, this kind of language. So I want to I kind of unpack this for a second. Th this idea. I think I've got this on here. I don't know. Here we go. Oh, yeah. The word, this idea of follow. <clears throat> follow. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you are thinking, what is that? You're probably in much better shape than we are if you don't know what this means. <clears throat> we have a things called, we have this thing called Facebook. <clears throat> and people are called Followers, right? Yeah, I've got about 12 you know, followers, you know. <clears throat> this is not what Jesus had in mind because on Facebook, you just click a button and I'm a follower. Woo, big demand, isn't it? I look at ministries sometimes that are <clears throat> out there. and They have thousands and thousands of followers. And I wonder how many of those people that are followers are giving and participating with that ministry? Wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, I'm a follower. Yeah, I like this. I like it. I'm a follower. But am I participating? Am I involved? Now, <clears throat> I thought I, we think in pictures. So I'm trying to get this picture in your mind of following Jesus. Forgive me if this <clears throat> is goofy, but it's you got to live up here for a while before you make that judgment. OK, you have to live up here for a little bit. <clears throat> but this idea of following, because I have changed my mind about who's in charge. When we went to Alaska <clears throat> some years ago. Uh, we were told, boy, you, you better be careful about getting between a bear and her cubs. And that's dangerous. Uh, those cubs are, if you see a, a cub, you better assume there's a mother bear close because they follow. Now, <clears throat> why do these little cubs follow the mother bear? Huh? What does the mother bear provide? Come on, this is a question. Protection, Protection for sure. They'll kill you. We got tracked by a bear while we were there. And uh, it's a little an exciting experience. And uh, it looked at me and said, gristle. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'd bite him back. Uh, uh, okay. Protection. What? Provide food. What? So I said over here, gu huh? guidance. I mean, little cubs are not born with all the skill set and understanding of, of, of what to do, right? So, so they, they're, they need to be protected. They, they need food. You know, they may not be able to, to get a, a salmon, or if you're from East Texas, a salmon out of the deal. That's what we always called them. They were salmon patties. I don't know. <laughs> when I heard it was salmon, I said, what's that? They said, you know, that. I said, no, that's salmon. It comes in a can. 
they don't know how to fish. They, they, don't, they don't know how necessarily to get salmon out of the river. They've got to be taught how to hunt. When I was looking at that, I thought, okay, it's kind of silly cliff, but it's not. Do you need any guidance in your life? Hey, my, my problem is I don't follow. Do you need any protection in life? We, we, we need to follow. Do, do you need to learn how to provide or to, to handle the challenges of provision for life? Yeah. It, it, it's when we understand that, that following is this, the fruit of really changing our mind about who's in charge and trusting in another that we begin to say, look, my role, my situation is to follow. I, John Maxwell made this statement, and he said Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it, so I'll take it. Bonhoeffer made this incredible statement. If you haven't read his life story, you, don't, you ought to read him. He a, was a great Christian leader in the 30s opposing Hitler, and, 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 and Bonhoeffer was being shuttled between prisons and places and, 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 and being persecuted. And actually, Hitler, when he's at Trilink, uh, uh, telling her, when he was at the final stage, Hitler made a phone call to say, make sure you kill him. And uh, Bonhoeffer made this powerful statement in the midst of all this turmoil and all of this not being able to control his own life. I mean, they just say, we're, we're going. He said this, I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm following Jesus. Just think about that for a second. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where this may end up. I don't have any control over this. They keep shuttling me around in different prisons to hide me. Maybe they're going to kill me. Maybe they're not. I don't know where I'm going. But I'm assured of this. I know I'm following Jesus. What do you mean? Every situation, every circumstance I find myself in, I'm following him. I'm trusting him. I, I wish I could come to that at some point in my life that, where I quit trying to manipulate the circumstances and control things the way they are and make people do what I want them to do and just say, okay, I, I don't know where this is going to work out. I, I don't know how this is going to go. But I'm going to follow Jesus in the midst of this. Why? Because he knows what I need. He's the one that can protect me. He's the one that provides for me. He's the one that teaches me how to live. Just like this mother bear provides and cares for these little cubs so they can grow and live their life. I need to make certain that I'm staying close, following close to Jesus. Now, Jesus gives those two statements, and I'm going to give them to you. Number one, deny yourself. Man, I hate this. <laughs> this is not... You know, I'm not, you're not going to sell a lot of tapes and get a lot of people to come to a conference to say the key to the Christian life is deny yourself. But I want, to, I want to look at this because this term, I grew up in a church that had defined it this way. If you like it, you can't do it. Right? If it's enjoyable, you can't do it. If it makes you happy, it's from the devil. That's just silly. I mean, it's just stupid. I mean, I remember them saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, if you love something too much, God's going to take it away from you. I thought, man, I love school. I love school. <laughs> I would try anything, okay? Yeah. Or if you don't want to go somewhere, what? Man, I'd hate to go to Hawaii. I remember praying that when I was 17. Oh, I don't want to go to Hawaii. Like, I could fool God. Look. This idea, when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking about something lots bigger than that. I want to suggest to you that this idea of denying self is to cease looking to yourself for guidance. Cease looking to yourself for the wisdom that you need. Cease looking to yourself that you can accumulate enough goodness that you'll somehow please God. Bonhoeffer has another statement on this when he says, when you come to the bone-crushing conclusion that you have to trust God and him alone for any goodness. He said, then a man or a woman becomes a Christian. 
for they cease. I remember reading Fenelon, a great Roman Catholic mystic, who said this, and, and there's a balance here. I'm talking to a particular kind of person here today, okay? I'm not talking about people that, that are playing around with sin and think it's fun and, you know, that grace means I just can do whatever I want to do. But Fenelon was referring to people who once they sin, it so shamed them and it so dramatically affected them and it made them feel unworthy and as if God didn't love them. Fenelon said this great statement when he said, what's happening is God is crashing down the idol of your own goodness. I backed up. He's crashing down the idol of your own goodness. That you've lived your life thinking, if I'll just be good enough, God will be pleased. If I'll just do enough, God will be pleased. There's an idol of goodness in some people. That once it happens, it puts them into a panic. That suddenly now they're in trouble. That's to deny that, to say, it's not my goodness. It's my reliance on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's an example. I had a friend that kind of grew up in this same tradition that, that said to me one time they, they'd had a kind of a windfall and had some, some extra money and they bought some stuff and, and then they felt guilty. I just said, well, give it to me. I won't feel guilty. <laughs> they didn't buy that. Sometimes you just can't manipulate people, you know. But this idea of denying yourself, it's more than simply something you just enjoy. And it's denying your own ability to be good enough to seek your own guidance. It's to rely on Jesus. I want you to look at a passage. Go to your table of contents I, real quick. First Timothy. And when I was talking to a friend of mine, I, I, I read this verse to them. And I, I said, have you ever read this? It's First Timothy 1135 in my Bible. It, it, it goes against this idea. You know, if you, if you like it or you're enjoying it, you know, it's wrong. 1 Timothy chapter 6. What'd I say? Huh? I'm talking to myself up here. Okay? I'm having a conversation with myself. Okay? That's the page number. I go to the table of contents. I go to the table of contents. And it, yes. You didn't get the syllabus. Always got a smart aleck in class. Huh? That's right, you. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. That's all of us right here, okay? To not be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who does what? What? All things to enjoy. Read that. I mean, listen, you're not, you, you're, you don't have to feel bad or guilty about enjoying something. It says right here, it says, it, just instruct those who are rich. In, that's us. That's all of us, regardless of where you are. Instru not to be conceited, you know, and, 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 and fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So I said these friends of mine, enjoy it. Don't get conceited. Don't think that you got, you know, you won the, you know, I, I was thinking the other day, I almost registered for the uh, National Clearinghouse thing. <laughs> I got started. Man, I'm telling you, those people want everything in the world. But I thought, man, I, I'm serious. Now I'm sitting here thinking five grand, I did the five grand a, a week. You know what perked up in my little brain? <laughs> Your time is up. Yeah. Yeah. What perked, what perked up in my brain, you wouldn't have to depend on God ever again. You ever thought, you ever had that thought? There's nothing wrong with having stuff. It's when it becomes, he says, we've put our hope on them. 
and just say, Lord, I can enjoy this. Denying yourself does not mean that you can't enjoy things. It means you can't put your hope in them. You see the second one here. I'm going to hurry now. Where Jesus said back in Mark, take, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Take up your cross. You know, uh, some people have uh, suggested that a cross is what's foisted on you. Like your, is a terrible thing to say, your, your, your mother-in-law. <laughs> well, you know, she's my cross to bear. I'm not even going to follow that one up. <laughs> Or, or it, you know, some people say, some people say, well, it's, it's an illness that I have. It's my cross to it. That's not it. This is a voluntary taking up this instrument of death to say, I'm going to live a Christ-centered life, not a self-centered life. See, the great, the great, the great challenge to live for Jesus is the self. Is the self that wants to take over and take control. And when Jesus says, you got to take up your cross and, and follow me. It's not something that gets put on you by circumstances. It's not something that happens to you because of other people. This is something you voluntarily, willingly take up and say, I'm going to accept this instrument, if you will, of death to self. Taking up the cross is dying to a self-centered life. How, how does that happen? Real, real quick, I, I think the only, it, there's only one way this can happen. And that is through the expulsive power of a new affection. Through the expulsive power of a new affection. No one can deny themselves just out of gritting their teeth and just out of some unbearable desire to go to heaven. It's too much. This kind of denying yourself of doing what's supposed to be done and living that way is, in my judgment, it's, it's just... Luke 15, prodigal son's older brother. I never disobeyed you. The older son, remember? I never disobeyed you. I never did anything wrong, but you won't throw me a party. That's not how this works. This idea of taking up my cross, of willingly dying, is because there's the expulsive power of a new affection that's taken over that's greater than my desire to live for myself. Back a century or so ago, we used to have what we called one-way missionaries. One-way missionaries used to go to the other side of the world. And because there was such a limitation in terms of their packing, they always packed their goods in a box to take with them. It was called a coffin. They took their own coffin with them, saying... I'm not coming back. I'll be buried over there. And I'm taking everything with me as I go. How, how do you get people to do that? Do you scare them to death? Do you say, if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell? No. There has to be some kind of expulsive power of a new affection to God and others that says, it so takes over my heart and my desires. I do this willingly. I'll take up the cross. Not griping and belly aching and screaming all the way, but taking it up saying, because there's something that's taken over the inward part of my life that has absolutely transformed my desires. John Wesley often said like this, it was always faith working through love. I think about this in military terms, and I'll shut up here on this. When I was a kid growing up, uh, I was... A, 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 eligible for the draft. And um, I remember watching every year my number came up. It was like 277, 312. And the year I was eligible, it was 76. <laughs> and they were taken to 90. And so I thought, I'm going to Uncle Sam's Country Club. <laughs> and I remember talking to friends who, you know, were in the draft. And we're thinking, we're going 
And we thought, well, man, I, whew, I don't know if I want to go. You know, we, we'd seen television, we'd seen TV, I had buddies come back. I've often reflected on this and thought about the difference in a draftee and a volunteer. I knew guys that volunteered to go. They, they didn't, I, I, I knew guys and other people that the only reason they went is they didn't want to go to prison for dodging the draft, right? They went, they took up their cross, if you will, and they went. They didn't go willingly. They were coerced. They were required. They were manipulated to go. And other guys I knew who went strapped up, ready to go, and couldn't wait to get there. Now, you might call it naivete, or some would call it a patriot. Some would call it the, the patriot heart that says, I want to go, and I willingly go and lay my life down. I've wondered about that. How many Christians are drafted, and how many are patriots? How many, are, how many are in because they're too afraid of hell? That, so the denying themselves, the taking up the cross is so galling to them. It's just like taking medicine every day. Or is there this expulsive power of a new affection that says, I go with my head held high with a song in my heart to follow Jesus. Y'all think about that. We all ought to. Are we draftees? Are we patriots? Are we people who are kind of hedging the bets? Or are we people who are following? Because a new affection has taken control of our heart and life. Well, I want you to remember this this week. <clears throat> so we're going to finish with this. Um, it's the only thing I can think of on this song. <clears throat> um, I thought you, we'll, we'll be dismissed here in just a minute. But as you leave, I'm going to play a song. Some of you know it. Uh, some of you uh, will remember it. Some of you will be singing it. No dancing, okay, on the way out. We're, this is a Church of God church, okay. No dancing. That's like I said. Some can, some can't, okay. But uh, I, I'd like for you to have this in your mind, that, that one of the things that Jesus said to us and told us in this regard of what does he expect is for you and I, or you and me, here we go, to follow. <clears throat>